Welcome in, everyone, to the Talking Tide podcast. I'm Chase Goodbread of NFL.com. I'm joined, as I am each week, by Travis Ryer, the longtime senior analyst at BamaOnline.com. So much to get it to here in this edition of the Talking Tide podcast. Great to have you for our, our second podcast with the Pigskin Podcast Network here on StreamYard. A lot coming technology-wise for the podcast in the coming weeks, but great to have our listeners back, Travis. Uh, our Twitter feed, talking underscore Tide. You can catch links to our podcast there every time. A smart link coming at you as well for uh, a whole bunch of apps, more than we used to have. Uh, so a lot of changes here on Talking Tide, but looking forward to all of them as we dive into the uh, sixth season uh, of the broadcast here. I want to thank our local sponsors up front, as always, Peterbrook Chocolatier, also North River Dental Associates. More on those sponsors as we move along in the program. But Travis, want to welcome you in. And, and at this point, we're talking uh, second scrimmage, final fall scrimmage for the Crimson Tide of fall camp. It's in the books uh, still a couple weeks out, I guess, obviously from the season opener against Miami. But we're kind of seeing an end or nearing an end to the camp portion of the preseason and fast approaching uh, the game week portion, which, as we know, Travis, Nick Saban typically likes to move into game week mode a few days before game week begins in, in week one. Uh, so that, that's kind of the place we're in right now. Yeah, and you get the sense that even though you've gone through the scrimmage phases of the preseason, still some areas of this team chase that could continue to need time to sort of develop and uh, ferment, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term or phrase, uh, as we get into the early stages of the season, it's going to be as fascinating as much as anything else against Miami to see how the rotation works out at a couple of different spots with offense up first, uh, primarily when you think about those positions. But they got through scrimmage number two and fairly good health, held some guys out that had some ankle issues. And Kendall Randolph, the right tackle, DeMarco Ellums, the safety, both Miss Saturday scrimmage, so some opportunities. J.C. Latham, the true freshman offensive tackle, among those at the tackle spot. And Brian Branch, the outstanding second-year defensive back, getting some work there at safety opposite Jordan Battle. So plenty of things to sort of continue to cover with this team as we get closer to what you talked about, game week. Game week for sure. Yeah, the offensive line, definitely something to keep an eye on. In the preseason, obviously, Nick Saban brings back uh, a couple key players up front for sure. Uh, Evan Neal, chief among them. Uh, but competition around that offensive line, not just at right tackle. Uh, you would think, Travis, where, when it comes to the right tackle competition, that if Kendall Randolph is running with the ones throughout this forthcoming practice week, it's a pretty darn good sign that he's survived as at least an early season starter at that spot. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned in the second scrimmage, you know, Randolph didn't go. Uh, Emil Echior didn't go either. Uh, an offensive guard, Nick Saban mentioned him as well. So uh, that's another spot where maybe some younger guys got a chance to show what they can do on the interior of that offensive line. And it's – it's uh, it, it it looks like the one unit on the entire team that, that's gonna that's gonna get to game week with the most fluidity. 
Yeah, I think you're pretty well set on the left side with Evan Neal, JV on Cohen. Um, before Saturday, you felt that way about Chris Owens, although Saban post-scrimmage said some interesting things about competition, even at the center position. So maybe a little bit of a rough outing for the six-year senior on Saturday afternoon in some pretty challenging conditions at Bryant-Denny Stadium. Emil Echior is entrenched as the starter at right guard. So really, assuming that Chris Owens gets the message and is okay at center, uh, that right tackle position will continue to be one of particular interest. And, you know, they've got nice depth now. They got guys back who have had some issues over the last year. Guys like Pierce Quick, Tommy Brown has played a lot of football from a depth perspective. He's been around the program three or four years now. So, you know, they're in a good spot where the interior offensive line is concerned. But at tackle, the money spots – you know, still trying to figure a few things out, and maybe Latham will take this opportunity to kind of push through the door. But a lot of trust in Kendall Randolph at this point in his career, and especially opening up against a top 15 team in Miami. You're not just going to throw somebody out there and kind of see if it works out. You're going to go with the guy you feel best about, and that's pretty much been Kendall Randolph since the spring. No doubt about it. I, although I, I will say this, Travis, I we, we've definitely entered a new era, and I, I say new. It's it is it, when I say new, it's probably five or ten years old. Okay, but we're in an era now with incoming freshman offensive linemen that's different than it used to be from this stamp from the readiness standpoint, right? I mean, there was a time when you and I were younger men. When offensive linemen coming in as freshmen were just about automatic red shirts. Uh, and the primary reason for that was that the high school game was so run based that there was a great deal of learning to do in pass pro for the incoming freshman offensive linemen. And so you'd see them red shirt almost across the board. Uh, w- with an exception here and there. It's not the case anymore. Now you see some of these guys coming in as true freshmen and taking over starting positions at big schools on more frequently. And the reason is that they're, in my opinion, one of the a couple reasons. One, obviously, the training, this position-specific training, I think, at the youth level has gone off the charts compared to what it used to be. And the other factor being that the football is getting thrown around so much at the high school level now, even though it's coming out really quick, that from a technical standpoint, these guys are coming in more ready as as pass protectors than they used to be. No doubt. I mean, you, you don't see the wing tee as much in high school football these days or the midline option, things like that, the veer those type of traditional offenses at the high school level kind of was initially a California thing. It felt like more so Then you saw it get into Texas and it just felt like it moved from West to East. And now it's pretty much everywhere. Um, And you've got guys coming from what are essentially SEC prep programs, IMG. Now that's where a JC Latham comes from. So they take it up even another notch, not so much even just in terms of schematics and things like that that equate, translate to the SEC level, but how they go about their business on a daily basis. It's essentially a big-time college atmosphere at a place like IMG, how they train, how they eat, how they practice, how they go to class, how they travel. So that helps in a case like J.C. Latham. Now, you know, there's been some guys that have come in through this program of late that haven't been put in that position of being out there too early. 
Jedrick Wills wasn't thrown to the Wolves in year one. Alex Leatherwood wasn't thrown to the Wolves in year one. Evan Neal started in year one, as we saw, but that was at the guard position, worked inside, then outside to right tackle. So you are having to go back a little bit to say Jonah Williams, Cam Robinson, but again, in J.C. Latham, you're talking about an early enrollee, so those 15 practices, very valuable in March and April. It's another factor, too, those those early enrollers, no doubt about it. Yep. Uh, they're, they're coming in fast. They're coming in ready faster, and they're going out faster, no doubt about it. All right, the Talking Tide podcast uh, right here on the Pigskin Podcast Network. Moving on, Jaleel Billingsley in the news this week as well, Travis, and I think when we kicked off our – uh, 2021 Talking Tide season last week. I don't even think we brought up Billingsley because at the time he'd already been welcomed back to practice, I guess, after beginning camp, uh, not exactly in good standing with Coach Nick Saban. Uh, but our friend Cecil Hurt asked Nick Saban again uh, this week about where things stand with the uh, excellent young tight end for the Crimson Tide. And Nick Saban minced no words uh this is not a democracy that was the <laughs> comment from Saban that uh that stuck in my ear anyway but uh, he he definitely left the impression that Jaleel Billingsley's got a little ways to go uh before he's back in and the good graces of the program yeah that's where it's at right now and you know early and preseason ball camp and it's media day and Nick makes the statement in relation to Jalil and kind of his status at the time, which wasn't exactly stellar. Um, we've seen this many times before with players. Nick Saban sends a message maybe through the media publicly, and typically it works itself out. So you go two weeks ahead and you think, well, Jalil's out there. Jalil's probably you know, cementing his status as one of their key guys on the offensive side of the ball. And then we hear from Nick after the scrimmage Saturday, and it sounds like there's been an increased level of frustration, perhaps, on behalf of Nick Saban, where Jalil Billingsley is concerned. And so now, as you said to open the podcast, we're really on the doorstep of game week and game prep for Miami. So where does that leave Jalil Billingsley in relation to the game plan, the script for the Hurricanes? So we well, week from next Saturday. So uh, it's going to be very interesting. Again, these are things that, like center, the comment about the center position Saturday, these are things that we never thought we would be having this conversation about with less than two weeks to go until Miami. But here we are. And I think in some ways it can increase the anxiety that Alabama fans already have in relation to the offensive side of the ball. Uh, but in other ways, it just reaffirms that in Nick Saban's world, at Nick Saban's Alabama, no one is immune from the standard being what it is on a daily basis and the commitment needed to uphold that standard. I think another uh, player we probably ought to touch on this week as well, Travis, is Jamison Williams, the transfer wide receiver from Ohio State. Uh, Nick Saban has, has been fairly effusive, I think, in his praise of him. I, I, that's a that's, that's a fair description of of Saban's remarks on when he was asked earlier in camp thinks this guy's going to be featured in the offense Nick Saban doesn't say that about a guy who's not going to be at least a top three target 
in this offense, at least among the wide receivers. Uh, a deep threat, a guy reputed to have a whole lot of speed, not, a, not necessarily a ton of production uh, with the Buckeyes, but he comes to Alabama – uh, at a pretty good time, given that they just shipped off another couple of first-round wide receivers. John Mechie returning, certainly on one side. Uh, Slade Bolden. There's definitely some options at wide receiver. But Jameson Williams picked the right time to transfer uh, into Alabama and, and try to make an impact. Yeah, there might not be a huge window right now between those guys that just went through the program and this next wave of young guys, especially this 2021 crop that has hit campus, but it is there right now. And so you're right. Some things that we heard from Nick after the scrimmage on Saturday, I guess it was actually last Wednesday that, you know, Nick did use those type of words, potentially feature this guy to go along with John Mechie speed. You already knew was a big attribute of his. I like the comment about he's an intelligent guy because that tells me He's able to come in and learn multiple spots. He's not just a one-trick pony. Okay, we got to just get him where he can understand the X position. He can get all three of their primary spots in that offense and in that passing game. And when you can do that, now you can start to move him around and get him in some mismatches because of his speed that have become so prevalent in college football these days. Get him in the slot where so many receivers now are devastatingly effective. So – yeah, that was a very encouraging report, and I think it showed up throughout the week and even into the scrimmage because it sounds like he had one of those long touchdown catches at Bryant-Denny Stadium on Saturday. Talking Tide podcast on the Pigskin Podcast Network. Moving on, we're going to thank our local sponsors here right now. Uh, starting with North River Dental Associates, the outstanding dental group here in Tuscaloosa for all your dental needs. I don't care if you need laser dentistry, pediatric dentistry, oral surgery, if it's a routine cleaning, whatever the case may be. Dr. Jack Smalley, former Alabama football player, and his fantastic staff of dental hygienists will get you taken care of. Conveniently located off of Watermelon Road, the fun, phone number 752-3506. Get in there twice a year for your routine cleanings. They're going to have you in and out of there. And I'm talking about open the door and leave through the door in less than an hour, sometimes less than 45 minutes. You're not going to be in that waiting room long at all. They'll get you called back. They'll get you taken care of, and they do a fantastic job. It's North River Dental Associates. Yeah, the speed and efficiency of a NASCAR pit stop at Dr. <laughs> yeah. Jack's. And while you're there, they too will work on your grill. I'll stop now. That's it. That's awful. It's terrible. I'm going to tell you about Peter Brook Chocolatier, also in that Indian Hills section of Tuscaloosa, 1530 McFarland Boulevard North in the Indian Hills section again of Tuscaloosa. You're going to be having those game day parties. Maybe you're going to tailgate. They're ready for you right now at Peterbrook Chocolates here. All the great chocolate treats and college football themes. Got the Alabama themes for you. Got some Roll Tide chocolate covered Rice Krispie treats. Those always do quite well. But anything in chocolate, high end chocolate. You're going to find at Peterbrook Chocolates here, 1530 McFarland Boulevard North. If you want to ship, you want to order, give them a call, 205-752-0211. They can ship chocolate anywhere you want it to go. Peterbrook Chocolates here. Get your chocolate at Peterbrook. 
and get it cleaned up at North River. That's the way to do it. Absolutely. (laughs) Tuscaloosa. All right. The Talking Tide podcast moving on. Our Twitter feed, Talking underscore Tide. Be sure to follow that. We drop links to the podcast right there every single week, twice week, uh, twice per week once we get into uh, the season. Uh, And uh, it's going to be a, a great time getting into this sixth season of the of the talking tide podcast travis we're going to spend the last few minutes of the podcast looking at the alabama schedule uh kind of from thirty thousand feet of course once we get in season we kind of talk nuts and bolts about the upcoming opponent uh the opponent that alabama has just played and so uh here as we get near the beginning of the season just kind of look at it as a whole and and uh the the starter with Miami and Atlanta definitely exciting. You want to see Alabama's defense against a quarterback like Derek King, uh, who can uh, not only do a lot of damage throwing the ball, but also running the ball. Uh, he's a special player. Used to play, of course, at the University of Houston. Transferred to Miami. Played well last year. Showed that that moving to the Power Five level. He can more than handle that. He's already proven that with one season at Miami. He's coming back, of course, for season two with the Hurricanes. Seems like he's been around college football forever when you uh, throw in his his career at the University of Houston. But the the defense for Alabama, working against him, working against a mobile quarterback who can really move the chains on his own when he has to, that'll be uh, exciting for sure in the opener. And moving forward, the road, the early road games, Travis. I wanted to touch on those as well. Alabama at Florida, September eighteenth. That's going to be a CBS game. They're going to be on the road at Texas A and M on October ninth. Uh, your thoughts, Travis, on which of those two may pose the biggest challenge for the Crimson Tide? Texas A and M bringing back a lot of starters on an excellent defense. Uh, but Florida comes earlier, and uh, that that Florida game is actually going to be Bryce Young's first true SEC road start. Uh, so those those two road tilts, you can't say out of the gate because we're into October by the time they play in, play A and M. Uh, but but those two road games, two to watch for sure in the first half of the schedule. Yeah, defining I think is a fair way to put both those games when you talk about Alabama's regular season for 2021 and you talked about it Bryce Young on the road true road game for the first time as a starter at Alabama I think that's where though even though it's not technically a road game at least going to Atlanta away from Tuscaloosa should be a benefit for him what'll be different is that the preparation time that he's had for Miami will probably be, well, will be condensed a good bit. Yes, there's advanced scouting. Yes, they've taken looks, probably even worked some on Florida uh, during the offseason between spring and fall camp to just get a, a, a indoctrination to, to the Gators in, in all three phases. But, you know, it's going to be a hot, hot day in Gainesville. We both know that. We're from those neck of the woods. And 2.30 Central kick on September the 18th. Sticky wow. humidity, Dr. yeah. Matt Ray and David Ballou, yeah, they're going to be put to the test, the entire staff at Alabama. But, you know, I think that's a game when you look at Florida, so many questions offensively like Alabama because so much of the 
production from a year ago is now in the National Football League. And I think it starts with Emory Jones at the quarterback position. I think the problem I have with Florida becoming the first SEC Eastern Division team to beat Alabama since 2010, which is just an insane statistic, is that if they can't throw the football consistently well in that game, this Alabama defense is also built in a way if you're tipping the run pretty much on a drive-by-drive basis, they're going to have their way with you between their depth up front on the defensive line, between adding Henry Toa Toa at the inside linebacker position to go along with Christian Harris and some other really good players. uh, You've got to be able to threaten Alabama throwing the football. And so that's where it gets tricky for me and sort of envisioning Florida winning that game, even in Gainesville. I tell you what I like as much as anything else, and I'm not telling anyone to get down with the man. We, We try to discourage you from that. But I had a conversation earlier today about Alabama and the spread in that game. And, you know, can you see Alabama covering the number against Florida? Probably the thing, and I don't even know what the total is right now for Alabama, Florida. I'd probably go under because I think it's going to be a 180 from the game in Atlanta last December. This ain't going to be 52 46. There's not going to be 98 points, good bread, in this one. I think this is going to be more of a grinder and. You know, I think Alabama, it's a good matchup for the Crimson side, but sure. Um, you know, you're going to be able to ask some of those same questions of the Alabama offense with a defense under Todd Grantham that can't be anything but better because that Florida D a year ago was atrocious. As we sit here right now, and by that I mean on paper, and factoring in that the Florida game comes earlier, do you see Florida as a bigger challenge than A&M? Yeah, I didn't exactly get to that, did I? I um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say no because I mean, obviously, you look at A and M across the board. Yes, at quarterback, there's a change going on there too with Kellen Mond moving on finally. But I just think across that roster, there's a little bit more. And again, I think Florida is going to be much improved. Went the grat, went the transfer route for a couple of needed defensive linemen. Um, added a big play guy at the running back position and Demarcus Bowman from Clemson. But I just think A&M is going to feel more comfortable with what they return. Now, here's the thing I worry about with Texas A&M is if they lose that Alabama game on October the 9th after their head coach has publicly said they're going to kick Nick Saban's ass or kick Alabama's ass, A&M goes to Missouri the next weekend, and even if A&M wins that game, I think the Missouri game in Columbia, Missouri, that next weekend could be extremely fascinating. To see how A&M handles it either way, because we've seen Alabama beat teams twice, right? two weeks in a row. Um, But we've also seen teams in the past that have beaten Alabama on the rare occasion not exactly handle that well either, so... Uh, I think A&M would be my pick, Chase. What about you? I'm going to say A&M, and, and, and you lean toward Florida a little bit because, as you mentioned, it's 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 earlier. It's it's Young's first true road start in the SEC, which, which as we know, historically, a fir, a, any, any quarterback's first SEC road start, if it doesn't go well early, it tends not to go well at all. Uh, so 
even though that's factored in, though, I still think A&M presents a bigger challenge. I think A&M's going to have a significantly better defense. So A&M, A&M's bringing back nine starters, Travis, yeah. from what was the number two rush defense in the country. I don't know rush defense isn't as important as it used to be. Pass defense matters more in these in, in these times. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, there's plenty of experience in the secondary for A&M as well, especially, I think, at that safety position. Uh, that's a nasty defense. And I, I'll sit here today and tell you, look, uh, unless Florida is going through uh, some peaks with 10-2, and 11-1 kinds of seasons, A&M's a tougher place to play. And, and I know a lot of Florida fans might be a little offended by that because the swamp can be a nasty place to play as well. But when both teams are eight and four caliber and, and, and look, that, that may not be the case this year. I'm just trying to make a point. Anywhere is tough to play in the SEC if you're riding high. But it, but but when A&M's an eight and four caliber team. College stage is a tougher place to go than when Florida's an eight and four. Florida gets quiet when the boys are eight and four down there, Travis. Exactly. And well, the last SEC West team to go into Gainesville won. And that was what, a three and five LSU team late last regular seat in December of last year, leading up to the SEC championship game. So yeah, that that's something you consider in all this as well. And I, I think the question for both these teams, Florida and Texas A&M, it goes back to offense. I think both defenses will be able to keep those teams around for at least a while. But is Haynes King, if he's the guy at Texas A&M, is he going to beat Alabama as a first-year starter at quarterback? Right. Is Emory Jones going to beat Alabama at the quarterback position? I, you can't hide the quarterback against Alabama. That's nope. been proven many, many times. And I think both those teams, and especially A&M, uh, offensive line questions I still have. And when you talk about Will Anderson and you talk about Chris Allen and the depth of that Alabama defensive line, if if you can't get it done up front and then you don't have a magician at quarterback, it's going to be tough. Yeah, no doubt. Second half of the schedule, enough on the first half of the schedule, Travis. We look at the back half of the schedule. Uh, starts off October 16th at Mississippi State, home against Tennessee, home against LSU. They go non-con against New Mexico State in November, home against Arkansas, and, of course, they finish up on the road at Auburn. You look at the second half of the schedule, Travis, you got to start with LSU. What to make of a five and five LSU team coming off a national championship season in 2019 for Ed Orgeron's squad. Uh, you would, you would think just based on a straight talent standpoint that LSU would be Alabama's biggest challenge in the second half of that schedule. But, but, but I'm not so sure, especially when you look at some of the talent that's just walked from LSU or Eric Gilbert, the, the outstanding tight end uh, and others, I, I don't know what I don't know what O is, is going to bring back this year. See, I'm I'm all in with LSU from a talent perspective. I think LSU is going to be not to Alabama's level, but maybe as close as you get. And that's understanding that AM is absolutely loaded on defense. I mean, Derek Stingley had just an absolutely forgettable 2020 at the cornerback position. I don't see that happening again 
The other side of that is that Eli Ricks is a true freshman was really good at the other corner. And you're going to have both those guys back. You're going to have experience up front on that defensive line. You return pretty much your starting offensive line from a year ago. I think some LSU fans would tell you that may not be a good thing. Um, you return pretty much your running back position intact. You return Kayshawn Boudé, who was a revelation at the wide receiver position as the 2020 season moved along, had a historic performance in the season finale against Ole Miss. And yes, the Miles Brennan injury is troublesome, but I'm a Max Johnson guy, self-professed. And so I'm big on him as the first uh, year starter at the at the quarterback position. So I, I see a lot of things to like about LSU. Uh, more so, I wonder about how they navigate all the noise off the field. And I think we're going to get a great indication in a couple Saturdays, Chase, when LSU goes out to the Rose Bowl and takes on UCLA. If they look in command and even dominant against the Bruins, I think that hype train is going to pick up for LSU moving forward. Going to be fun to watch. Uh, At Auburn, of course, closing things out. Brian Harson taking over the program down at AU. Travis, that's definitely the other game, uh, second half of the schedule that Alabama fans are going to have circled. Your thoughts on what Harson inherits uh, and and what he brings to the program on his end? Uh, You know, you look at it on paper and Auburn returns, again, another one of these offensive lines that's pretty much intact. But then you hear from scrimmages in the preseason that they're kind of getting it handed to them, which you like hearing that because you had concerns defensively about that front for Auburn. Maybe not so much on the edges and even at the linebacker level, but right there up front. So that's been a mixed bag. Square peg, round hole. That's my initial thought when I think Brian Harson offense with Mike Bobo in there as his offense coordinator. I think Mike can do as good a job trying to bring Bo Nix along in that kind of offense, which is actually going to ask him from time to time to go under center, more traditional in its approach. But again, I just don't like a lot of the personnel fits for Auburn. Uh, and, it, and it really starts with Bo Nix. Now, maybe Bo will go out there and, you know, live up to to the, the recruiting rankings from a couple of years ago. But I looked at Bo Nix as a recruit, as a perfect fit for Gus, Gus Malzahn in that offense. I, I look at him for what Auburn really wants to be under Brian Harson, as, again, square peg, round hole. And with that, I can't discount the possibility of LSU transfer T.J. Finley at some point not being a real factor in that mix. If you're Auburn, you can't get enough, to, in my opinion, I, and regardless of what, you know, Harson wants to bring schematically, et, et cetera, uh, Knicks is what Bobo can do with Knicks. You can't go wrong with handing the ball to Tank Bigsby. Yeah. And and that that's, that's not exactly the popular way to put you know, the staple of anyone's offense, the way teams throw it around now. But my gosh, if if I'm Brian Harson, I'm leaning on Tank as much as I can lean on that guy. Yeah, it, it has to be carry on Johnson-like in 2017 for that team for a couple different reasons. Um, but I agree. And I think I don't think that offensive line you want to put in a situation where it's pretty predictable that 
you know, so many obvious passing situations. And then you're asking Knicks to perform from the pocket on a consistent right. basis. Uh, and there's a lot to replace on the outside as well. Anthony Knicks Schwartz, is a jag. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just quarterback. Yeah. I mean, I like the running back position. I think they're going to have nice depth there too, to go along with Bigsby, but the passing game in general, if I'm trying to protect, if I'm trying to ask Bo Nix to do something that's a 180 from really what he's done from the crib. And then I'm wondering exactly how dynamic am I consistently against elite competition at the wide receiver position. So I'm not in on Auburn at all. I, I could see all I, I think that's a game that if Alabama's healthy and even fairly healthy, um, they're gonna win by a couple of touchdowns. There you have it. That is going to do it for this edition of the Talking Tide podcast. Great to have our listeners here. Be sure to join us next Sunday night. We'll wrap up the preseason, look ahead a little bit to the Alabama-Miami game. You uh, have been listening to the Talking Tide podcast here on the Pigskin Podcast Network. For Travis Ryer of BamaOnline.com, I'm Chase Goodbread of NFL.com. We'll talk to you next time here on Talking Tide.